You are listening to the Fancy Free Podcast, where my guests and I tell our most embarrassing, funny stories so that we all feel less alone in our imperfections and forge connection through vulnerability and humor. I'm Joanne Jarrett, and I am your host. And today I have with me Karen Tapley. Karen is a fellow physician. She is an obstetrician gynecologist, fellowship trained in integrative medicine, and has transitioned out of traditional practice and is currently selling Mercedes-Benz as she completes her MBA. So I think she's addicted to school. (laughs) She calls it her COVID career. She's a total car chick. And you guys, this is so fascinating. She started off her higher education with a GED. So Karen, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Oh, good. Absolutely. Well, fill in the blanks. I have a lot of questions, but first of all, just tell us a little more about who you are and what you do. That is currently a moving target. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. By traditional training, I'm an OBGYN with a fellowship in integrative medicine that I got at the University of Arizona down in Tucson. And I finished that in about 2018. I was also establishing a medical spa at the same time. I started off like a lot of OBGYNs. I went into a private practice first where I was doing GYN only. My husband was career military in the Navy. And so my first job out of residency was in Oregon and he was stationed in Washington. We had been separated for the better part of our marriage because of residency and training and everything. So I tried to make it work as much. We tried to make it work as much as we could. But then I finally decided to transition up to Washington where I took a traditional employed job where I was taking Q3 call 72 to 96 hours at a time. Got about three and a half years into that. I finally went to our office manager to take some vacation time and was told that I didn't have any because I only accrued vacation time when I was physically in the office seeing patients. What? Exactly. I was not okay with that answer, uh, obviously, because I was basically working as hard, if not harder than I did in residency. So I transitioned Mm. to locums at that point, which was actually a really fascinating and fun transition transition. And if you know any of your listeners out there, fellow physicians, my gosh, look into locums. If you're burning out or you just need something to kind of transition while you figure out your next step, do locums. It's so freeing. The hospitals and the communities and the patients that you get to treat are so appreciative of your time and, and being there. It was, it was wonderful. Unfortunately, locums does, when you're a proceduralist, you have to, you know, quote, keep up your numbers to keep your credentialing up. And because the locums companies were intentionally sending me to these tiny little towns that desperately need doctors, they don't really have the numbers because they don't have that many people. And so in a very strange catch-22, after doing locums for almost four years, it came time for me to re-credential with my locums company. And they told me I didn't have enough procedures to keep going. You would think they would be keeping track of that and had some kind of formula where they'd pump everybody through a high volume location. Oh my goodness. Luckily, I had been smart about it. I had paid off a whole lot of debt. I had saved up a whole lot of money because our housing was paid for, our travel was paid for. So basically, most of my income was able to be saved and used to pay down debt. And so I was able to come back to Washington State where I opened my little medical spa. 
I closed that, unfortunately, in 2019 because there were some family illness issues that I had to help with. And I was a solo Mm. practitioner, didn't have any backup. I started looking for work again at the beginning of 2020. And right when I signed a contract to do wound care in the panhandle of Florida, which is where my parents live, COVID hit. And I'm Mm. in Washington state, which is still in a state of lockdown. And so they had closed the airport. So I physically could not get to this job and had to turn it down. So that prompted me to start my MBA, which I am now almost three quarters of the way through with a (laughs) 4.0. Nice. And I'm about to take managerial accounting and I'm like, oh no, here it comes. (laughs) First B, it's coming. It's like organic chemistry. Like you're staring at it going, Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> this will hurt me. I just know it. <laughs> Before I got into medical school, you're right. I had a GD. I was a horrible student. Uh, I personally think it started early, early on. My parents moved to Houston in the early 70s because my dad got a job with Texas Instruments after he got out of the military. I was coming from South Florida where my grandparents had a ranch and I had a pony and We were moving to Texas, so I thought there was going to be cowboys and Indians and horses and cows, and (laughs) Mm -hmm. instead we moved into suburban Houston where it was all concrete and houses and no cowboys or Indians or horses or Mm. cows. They put me into my second grade class, which is where I was by age, and apparently I was not doing very well, and so several of my teachers apparently wanted me held back for the year, and luckily, my gosh, Mrs. Cordell, that one teacher everybody remembers, right? Your advocate. Yeah, said, I don't think she's slow. I think she's bored, and I underwent a battery of testing at the end of which they bumped me up to fourth grade from second. Oh, wow. So now I'm the little bitty new girl in fourth grade. And I think things just went down from there. By the time I hit high school, I was just all over the place. I wouldn't do any of my homework, no homework ever. Wow. But I loved to read and I loved learning things. So I would read. And luckily I had parents who did not answer questions for me. I I had those annoying parents who said, go look it up. And when you say go look it up now, you can just whip your phone out of your pocket. But when we were kids, go look it up meant go to the library. (laughs) We had a full Encyclopedia Britannica. I literally remember spending hours because I didn't know how to spell it. Well, how am I supposed to look it up if I don't know how to spell it? Like, how can I find it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and of course, my mom would say, well, what does it start with? And I'm like, uh, S. Okay, we'll start with S. <laughs> so, I learned lots of things. My husband calls it useless trivia queen. I'm pretty deadly in, in bars and, and restaurants that have those trivia games. <laughs> Ironically enough, I did not fail out of high school. I got kicked out. Oh, my. I made it all the way to the bitter end. I would have graduated. Not very prettily, but I would have. My parents had gotten divorced. My mom had moved me to Florida. I had run away from home all the Mm. way back to Texas and was living with my boyfriend and his mother. And when I skipped on senior skip day, the school called my dad, who did still live in Houston. He was living with, you know, one of his girlfriends or something. My dad said, well, I don't know where she is. She doesn't live with me. And they called me into the office the next day and they disenrolled me from school. Because I didn't live with my parents. Yep. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you can't even imagine that happening nowadays. But that's what happened to me. I was, you know, already a total rebel. And so I was like, well, 
screw them. I'll show them. I don't need that diploma. I'm going to go get my own. So I literally went and got my GED and was done before the rest of my class graduated. Wow. You're like, ah, I have a better way. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. I have a girlfriend who I've actually, unfortunately, I've lost touch with her now, but we were real close in medical school and she is an OBGYN in Portland and she has a GED too. And the reason mm-hmm. why she does is because she got pregnant in high school and they told mm-hmm. her, you mm-hmm. can stay in school, but you have to drop out of every single extracurricular. And she was like, up yours. I'm, I'm not yeah. doing that. So she just yeah. was like, fine, I'll get my GED. And then she just clawed her way back to where she is today. And I yeah. think it's amazing. So you get your GED. Your friends haven't even graduated yet. You're living with your boyfriend and his mom. Yeah, I was like 17. So of course, the high school boyfriend thing didn't work out. And we ended up sure. eventually parted ways. At that point, I went through my couch surfing phase. You know, I was always working. I've been working since I was about 15. My first job and really every subsequent job since then, uh, honestly, is because uh, remember Jordache jeans? I mean, I'm kind of dating myself here, but oh yeah, I, but I do. No, I, I think we. Yes. I think we're the same vintage. <laughs> Back when Jordache was super popular, and all the rich girls in my class was, were wearing Jordache jeans, I was clearly in the Target and Sears. My parents were teenage parents, right? So I had no mm. background that college was going to be ever in my life, ever. Oh, wow. My parents were young teen parents. My mom had just turned 17 when I was born. Wow. My dad had to join the Air Force to avoid the Vietnam draft. Mm. And they basically had a shotgun wedding. Speaking of your friend, my mom got kicked out of high school because she was pregnant. Oh, my goodness. Poor thing. Before all of that happened, I had had a big argument with my dad um, when I was probably about 15, and I wanted some Jordache jeans really bad, and he wasn't about to pay, you know, however much they were. And he said, You need to go get yourself a job where you can afford yourself. And I was mm. like, Challenge accepted. <laughs> Interesting. Your work ethic began with your style, your Jordache jeans. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cute. Wow, what a story. What was your first job? AutoZone. Really? I worked as a parts girl at the parts counter at AutoZone. So the car thing goes back a little bit further. So when I was still living in, in Houston before my parents separated, I had a crush who was a year older than me, he and his father were restoring this old uh, 65 Mustang. And I decided that the only way I was going to be able, you know, I kept flirting with them, but I was younger. And, you know, for whatever reason, he was, you know, high school boy, right? He was ignoring me. Um, (laughs) And so I decided to go take auto mechanics to impress him. And so I was the first girl in my high school to take auto mechanics. Wow. So my parents, uh, we can't even conceive of this now, but my parents had to go meet with not only the principal, but the guidance counselors. You're kidding. This girl wants to take auto mechanics. What's wrong with her? Oh my gosh. Yes. It was expected that I was going to go take a music class or, you know, learn how to sew or typing or something, you know, one of those Mm -hmm. kind of electives. I had to sit there through the meetings and tell them, no, really, I want to learn how to work on cars, really. And they just thought both my parents and I were just nuts. But since I was already a horrible scholastic failure, they're like, you know, whatever. She needs a marketable skill. Maybe this will work out. (laughs) Exactly. So they finally relented. They let me go. They let me go into auto mechanics. And of course, I kicked 
ass. I did. I, yeah. I made an A. It was awkward at first, obviously. I mean, you know, all the guys in the class were like, what is going on? <laughs> By the time I got done, you know, and, and was done, because I want to say it was a full year. All these guys were like my brothers, right? Now, all of a sudden, yeah. I am like the most popular girl in school, but not wow. for the typical reasons. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. All the boys knew you. Yeah, all the boys liked me. All the boys would defend me from the mean girls. Yeah. uh, Half of which they were dating. Um, You know, and and so it was just a really interesting position to be in. And I was the only one. Hmm. You're a trailblazer. I have always done things, I mean, the hard way, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Or the unique way. You just are like, I'll do what I want. That's awesome. I love it. As you know, the point of this podcast is to share our not-so-fancy moments so that our listeners don't feel so alone. What do you have for us today as far as not-so-fancy moments? Surgical residency, obviously, is always known to be pretty tough. There's no bones about that. You're supposed to go in it with eyes wide open. You know you're going to work hard. You know you're going to be sleep-deprived. You know you're going to get beat up and yelled at, You know that it's not going to be pleasant, but that it's that way for the same reasons that boot camp is tough on military folks, right? You Mm -hmm. need to get, quote, toughened up so that you can survive your day-to-day job and keep functioning in the face of horrendous situations and time constraints. What I did not anticipate was the the politics Mm. of medicine. Because of my academic uh, background, I went into medicine a little bit older. I was about five to 10 years older than my classmates, depending on how Doogie Hauserish they were. Because <laughs> we had some really young people in my class. I was 30 when I got into medical school. And so I went into residency as somebody who had already worked like multiple yeah. jobs, not not mm-hmm. just those, you know, college jobs or entry level jobs. I'd, I'd actually had some real jobs. And more importantly, I'd owned a business before I went off to college. Plus, I was just older, right? So I had a maturity yeah. level that was different than a lot of my classmates. So when I went into residency, I I struggled a little bit with the hierarchy, first of all. Yeah. And then I walked into a residency program where there was a political coup going on with the program director. So oh, my particular class, which was four females, was hired by one program director. You know, so we we interviewed with one program director and then went mm-hmm. through the match and, and got in. But then by the time we actually started work, a second program director who had been a a rival at another program right up the road had taken over the spot. And the introduction to him was him standing up and saying, well, now that I'm here, we're going to get some real real quality residents in here and we're going to turn this into a real (sighs) academic program. Oh, no. So he alienated you guys right from the start. Yes, yes. And I'm coming from a great program. I went to University of Florida. My three girlfriends, uh, one went to Harvard, and the other one went to University of Miami, and the other one went to Emory. So, you're like, um, exactly how do you think you're going to get a better batch than this? <laughs> right. The next thing that we noticed was that for whatever reason, they would pick and then pick on one resident from the intern class every single year. 
And we figured this out after talking to some of our seniors and things like that. And it started with one of my classmates and they just harassed her and harassed her and harassed her until, you know, she finally was just, you know, at her wits end. Um, By the end of our intern year, two of my classmates left the program out of the four of us. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't my imagination. (laughs) You no, know? oh my gosh, um, and 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 it wasn't my rebellious or anti-authoritative attitude, uh, which I do cop to sometimes. But you know, I was in pretty pretty much humble pie mode the whole time. So mm. by the time I hit third year of our four year residency, they had either held back or fired one resident each year wow. that I was there. Yeah, and what. It did. It seems kind of weird, but what it does is it opens up a second slot. So you get to fill the slot that's empty, mm-hmm. but they also get like, I guess, like a half slot or an additional slot because you're looking for somebody or whatever. So the, the end result oh. is that you get five residents for the cost of four. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And oh. so they were playing, it's my opinion. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I, I think they were doing it because we were super, super busy. We were doing about 11,000 deliveries a year with 16 residents. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we were super busy. And I think it was their way of overcoming that ACGME monetary cap for residents. Mm-hmm we started getting fairly defensive about it and and upset and felt like we were being targeted and essentially discriminated against and harassed. (laughs) They went after my one classmate who was uh, part of the military. She was on military scholarship. So she was going to be going off to be an army doc and they caused her to not only have to repeat a year, but she ended up having to do more military time as well because she was on scholarship. I mean, so they were really screwing with people's lives. And eventually it came around to where it was my turn. And I just started fighting them tooth and nail. Like I was not about to go down like that. You know, I was Mm -hmm. not going to be repeating a year. I was not going to be quitting. I was not going to allow them to fire me without a lawyer. And I was mature enough and old enough to know that what they were doing was not right. But they've got the upper hand. They're the program and you're a resident and you don't have many options. And at one point they said, you know what, you either undergo this psychological testing or we're going to kick you out of the residency because we think that you're, you know, basically a disruptive physician was, you know, that's not what they called it, but that's what they were trying to, to pin on me. Right. Oppositional defiant disorder as. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That I had, and that I had a learning disability. (laughs) Because I shockingly didn't score in the top, you know, 10th percentile of my in-service exams because, you know, God, why would I when I'm this stressed out and never have any time to study? And so I said, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. Let's see if I have a a learning disorder because I knew I didn't because I got tested when I was a little kid. Remember? Mm -hmm. I knew something they didn't know. Bring it on. And so they sent me to their psychiatrist or, or, you know, whatever. And, and I don't want to say that that person would have been compromised, uh, but you never know. Right. Yeah. Um, Right. And so could have been a setup. You never know. Yeah. It could have been a setup. Exactly. But I went and when the report came out, the report literally said she has acute stress disorder from a toxic work environment. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) 
Oh, the psychiatrist <laughs> held a mirror up to their faces, didn't he? Oh, Holy it cow. was so awesome. And it all went away instantly. It was so contentious that by the end, we actually did not attend our own graduation. We told them, do not throw us a party because we will not be there. Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're not going to go and we don't want you to be embarrassed. We tried to be the bigger people, right? And say, right, you right. Know, just, just, we're not going to be there. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody has, has seen what has happened at this program because we basically had a no contact order. Um, you know how the hospitals always have the, the liaison for the ACGME up at the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, top levels of the hospital. We had made an arrangement with them that basically until we graduated that we were going to have no contact with our program director. It was that bad. Wow. Oh my gosh. Those last few months, it was just, we came into work, we did our work, we went, we went home. We were fine with that. We had no problems with any of our, our mentors or other attendings. This was long standing dysfunction in this program. Mm. The good side of it was that, you know, it did get looked at after we left. Good. They had some other incidences, uh, one of which got national attention. And then after that happened, things really cleaned up. They literally had a couple of residents that ended up going to federal prison (laughs) for problems. And I I won't get into that because that's a different story, but it is actually verifiable through, you know, public public disclosure but but it was it was a big deal. It was a federal drug sting kind of thing. And Mm. after that the program got a lot of scrutiny. And I think at this point, they have redeemed themselves. They now have more residents per year that the workload's probably been improved for everybody. And I think my class was that class that just kind of broke the, the tipping point. Yeah, the tipping point, to be sure. It, it put mm-hmm. enough of a spotlight on what was going on. That just makes me so sad. And listeners, if you aren't physicians, you probably don't know that you know, OBGYN isn't just delivering babies, which would be stressful enough. It's a surgical specialty whereby they deliver babies vaginally and surgically, but then they do all the gynecologic surgeries on top of that. And that if you decide to be in an OBGYN residency, you're going to spend more hours in the hospital per year than any other resident in the country in any program, even trauma. I mean, is is what I basically found out when I was choosing my specialty. Because my favorite thing was to deliver babies. I loved it more than anything. But I decided I didn't want my life to look like that. And I went a different direction. So not only are these people going through something that you almost have to be superhuman to tolerate, even under the best of circumstances, and then you're getting all of these spikes thrown down in the road at you from multiple directions from people who are supposed to be your cheerleaders and your advocates. I just can't even mm-hmm. believe it. But I'm really glad it got mm-hmm. cleaned up. And it sounds like you got th- you you came out the other end just fine. So that's good. Not just fine. You were you were traumatized. I definitely had PTSD coming out. Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. I didn't know that I did. I got really lucky. I joined a gynecology with aesthetics practice straight out of residency and I thought everything was great. Well I moved to Oregon and I wasn't going to officially start until like September. You know, we had to do the credentialing and all that. Mm-hmm. And so I had that period between July and September where I, I basically got a break, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got, mm-hmm. I got to have a vacation finally after, well, my entire life up to that point. I had moved across the country. I was out of residency. I was so happy. I had the perfect job for me. My husband was deployed. We were financially, I mean, where everybody is right after residency, like you're broke, but you know, hey, there's a paycheck coming any day now. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 
You might have a little signing bonus in your back pocket. (laughs) Exactly. Things were certainly improving from where they had been in residency. And more importantly, residency was over. It was over. The nightmare was over. And now I'm at the light at the end of the tunnel. Woohoo! I was sitting on the couch one day. It was about nine o'clock in the morning and I was watching a movie, totally relaxed. I popped my neck. Mm. (laughs) It's the stupidest thing, which I've done a gazillion times before, just like everybody else on the planet. And for whatever reason, it zinged me. And when it zinged me, I just had this panicky thought that, Mm. what was that? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? That felt weird. Oh, hey, there's nobody here. Hey, I don't have anybody to call. I don't know anybody here. What if something's wrong with me? I just spiraled into what Uh. I later figured out was my very first panic attack. Ever. I was about that stage in my career when I had my first one too. I challenge you to find a doctor who does not have some PTSD. Yeah. I ended up having to call my landlady who was, oh, by the way, the office manager of the clinic I was joining. Um, (laughs) Because she was literally the only person I knew in the entire state. So I called her and told her, you know, that I wasn't feeling good. I didn't know what was wrong, but my, my chest was hurting. And, you know, at this point I'm in full blown panic, I, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm dying. I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack. I'm, you know, and even though the doctor in me is like, you're 40 stupid, you're not having a heart attack, mm-hmm. you know, but then the other, the other part of you is like 40 year olds have heart attacks. They some do. do, some do. I saw a teenager once. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Exactly. So so I'm going down this road and I ended up calling 911 and I ended up going in an ambulance ride to the hospital that I was about to attending privileges at in my sweatpants, bare feet, no bra, wearing a t-shirt and, you know, hair, hair unbrushed. And of course they're asking all the typical things, you know, what do you do? Where (laughs) Just like... Oh no, I'm gonna get fired before I ever oh even start my, my job. Gosh. And uh, you're like, like, I'm uh, just, it's, I'm like a secret shopper. I'm just gonna make yeah, sure this place treats yeah. their patients well before I sign it up. It was obviously, it was so <laughs> oh, awkward. And, and then I went through, you know, the million dollar workup, which I, you know, turned out to be fine. And in the end, you know, I had to just kind of look at myself and say, you know what, stupid, you had a, you had a panic attack. Hmm. I can only think that it was basically my body's release of eight years of extreme stress from the moment I got into medical school until, until I got out of residency, just being in a pressure cooker for all those years. And then finally having a moment where I really didn't have any pressure at all. And my body Uh just didn't know how to deal with it. And it was just like a a coil that was ready to spring. Yeah. Oh, boy. It got really bad for about three or four months. I mean, really bad. Of course, I went into full doctor self-treating mode and read all the books and read all the papers. And, you know, I was adamant that I did not want to go on any medications. I knew that anxiety was for a lot of people anyway, not everybody, obviously. It's a learned response due to bad coping mechanisms. And so I basically learned how to recope. Um, and I'm glad because now, you know, do I get panicky? Sure. But I get panicky over things that normal people get panicky over, like, you know, being at the top of Mount Everest or something or falling Mm -hmm. out of a perfectly good plane or something, (laughs) you know? Yes. (laughs) 
Tell me what you're going to do once you have your MD and your MBA. What is the plan for you in the future? Now that I'm doing the MBA, and, I, and I'm not somebody who would want to kind of take that traditional route. A lot of MD, MBAs will go on to become healthcare leadership. You know, they'll run a mm-hmm. hospital, they'll run a clinic, they'll, you know, whatever. I've not ever wanted that. I was looking more at actually getting out of clinical medicine completely and utilizing it with maybe venture capital or tech companies. I personally believe that healthcare is going to go almost completely AI, so artificial intelligence. I I truly believe that in maybe 10 or 15 years, I mean, based on the way cars are moving right now, I, I truly believe that in 10, 15, maybe 20 years, you're just going to walk up to a kiosk, you're going to put your hands on it or something, and it's going to like scan you. And it's going to basically diagnose you based on your vital signs and whatever. We already have devices that can test your blood sugar through your skin. Yeah. And our iPhones can tell us whether or not we're having, you know, arrhythmias, mm-hmm. our iPhones, it's you so know? Crazy. know, it's so weird. I really think that's where medicine is going. And with the exception of surgeons, I think that doctoring as we know it is coming to a close. I really, it's unfortunately, I I don't agree with it. I really think it's the inevitable momentum. I I really think that a lot of medicine is going to eventually be replaced like that, mechanized and automated to save money and risk exposure. A physician who also has an MBA who can, you know, talk both of those languages is going to be a very valuable person, I think. And if you're a physician who also has the IT side, which I do not have, um, and probably won't have. Maybe that'll be next. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm I'm definitely very proficient, but I'm not uh, great at it. So where I'm going to go with it right now, apparently as of today, it looks like I'm going to be going into hyperbaric medicine. Wonderful. Yes. So we'll we'll see. I used to be a diver. And so hyperbaric medicine has always been something that has interested me. I've been making connections in the uh, non-clinical physician world for the better part of a decade now. SEEK really, really helped. Uh, So SEEK, I don't know what the acronym, actually, it doesn't really have anything to do with medicine at all. It's actually run by a couple of lawyers, of all things. Um, But these lawyers were astute enough to figure out that there was a market of doctors who were disengaged franchised with medicine and were looking for alternative careers. And because they are lawyers, they had access to those alternative careers. They they knew of these employers out there who need doctors for other things than doctoring. They need our expertise. Uh, yeah, they need our expertise in, you know, medical writing, medical illustration, utilization management, uh, expert speakers, ex- expert witnesses. And that's really how they started is that they were lawyers who needed expert witnesses. And so, so I went to that first seat conference, couldn't really absorb anything, but it did open my eyes that there were possibilities out there that I didn't necessarily have to quit medicine. I just had to change what I was doing. That gave me the the strength and the willpower to quit my employed job. That's what, how I started locums. When I was getting to the point where I wasn't going to be able to recredential for the locums, I went again. It was very enlightening to be able to finally step back and just say, you know what? I can do other things in life and mm-hmm. still make money. Yeah. And if I choose to stay a clinician, great. But if I'm not a clinician, that's okay too. 
as I've been getting this MBA, I've been working at this car dealership. And, you know, people are like, you're, you're selling cars. You're, you're a doctor selling cars. Like, what's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me. I'm still Why a not? doctor. Yeah. I'm getting an MBA. And guess what? Cars are business. That's mm-hmm. what I'm learning. You know, I'm learning a business outside of medicine. And oh, by the right. way, I'm a car chick and I'm selling Mercedes, which makes me really happy because I get to drive around these fancy, fancy so cars. Fun. <laughs> so yeah. fun. And they're not mine and I don't have to pay for them. That's perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Karen, tell my listeners where they can find you online. Find me on Facebook uh, at Dr. Karchik, uh, Dr. C-A-R-C-H-I-C, Dr. Karchik, and I'm on Instagram in the same place. Awesome. Okay, tell me about your website, wastedtraining.com. That's my baby. (laughs) I founded Wasted Training a couple of years ago now. It's more of a pay-it-forward kind of gig where if people need help with a direction, I'm a good ear and can give them suggestions Amazing. Oh my gosh, Karen. Well, this was it was so incredible to talk to you today and I thank you so much for your time. It has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to the Fancy Free podcast today. Make sure you check out the show notes at fancyfreepodcast.com/episode106 so that you can get all the links we discussed today. Remember to follow the Fancy Free Podcast wherever you're listening so that new episodes pop into your feed each week. If you have a story to tell, email notfancy at fancyfreepodcast.com and I'll read it on the show as a listener story or you can record a voice memo and send it to me there or go straight to fancyfreepodcast.com and record a voice memo right on the website. Have a wonderful week and remember, no one is as fancy as they look.